If you love the Adventure Sports Podcast, I'm confident that you're going to love Armchair Explorer. It's a new podcast by a recent guest, Aaron Miller, who is an award-winning London Times and National Geographic travel writer who basically sits down with some of the world's biggest explorers and adventurers and lets them tell their favorite story of all time. We're talking Olympic gold medalists who backcountry ski in Alaska to award-winning travel riders who walk across Antarctica in the footsteps of Shackleton, gorilla trekking with leading conservationists, great white shark diving with some of the best in the industry, as well as interviewing astronauts about spacewalking above Earth. It's honestly a condensed version of our show, taking the best of the best stories and letting those explorers tell them. If you're interested to hear more, I highly encourage you to check out armchair-explorer.com or just looking up Armchair Explorer anywhere you find podcasts. And let it inspire you to get out there and do something fun and do something epic. And I would just look at the surround. Nobody was around, and I would look around at the surrounding mountains, and be so pristine. And you'd say, "Yes, this is why I'm in the Park Service." This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we hear stories of adventure from every corner of the planet. We interview all sorts of folks who are using their sport to explore the world around them and give you the inspiration you need to get out there and have some fun. Hey, folks, I hope you're doing well out there. Uh, today we have a very very cool story. Uh, it's with Dallas Cohen. He is a retired U.S. park ranger. Uh, he's joining us today from his home in Breckenridge, Colorado. Uh, he's 78 years old, worked in the park service for 34 years, and uh, that was from 1964 to 1998. So he's been out of it for, for a while now, but started way back when I'm sure being a park ranger was like being a cowboy in the Wild West in a lot of ways. And so he's going to tell us some stories, um, tell us how he got into it, give you some advice, and also just share some of the most unique experiences uh, from his entire career. But I, I do want to say he did everything from uh, <clears throat> visitor and resource protection, wildlife or wildland fire protection, law enforcement that a lot of rangers do now, EMS stuff, search and rescue, and he was a supervisor in, in a few parks, but he did he worked in Yellowstone, Yosemite, Death Valley, Grand Canyon, Grand Teton, Shenandoah, Lassen Volcanic, and finished up his career in Glacier National Park. So if you're a fan of the Park Service, uh, those are just the, the cream of the crop places. Like those are unbelievable places to essentially spend your life. And now he lives in, in Colorado in a ski town. So pretty awesome stories and career to say the least. And he still works a lot with some of the uh, volunteer backcountry hiking patrols as well as search and rescue volunteer stuff in Colorado. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, it's nice to just talk to someone who's seen it all in a lot of ways, especially kind of in the times we're in and get some perspective on what's going on. And so, uh, yeah, I hope it's a great escape for you and hope you enjoy it. But we'll talk soon and see you on Thursday. Yeah, so gosh, you, you're you a retired U.S. park ranger. You served in just tons of national parks and folks heard a little bit about it in the intro, but first of all, uh, Mr. Cohen, I'd love to welcome you to the show. So th thank you for joining us and thank you for doing this. You're welcome. So how many years exactly did you spend with the Park Service? Well, total about 34. Two of those were seasonal positions, seasonal park ranger. Oh, wow. So 34 years, what happened early in life that led you down this path? Because I'm sure... You know, it seems like it's a neat thing to do now, but back then, I don't know what it was like to be a park ranger. And it was, were you outdoorsy particularly? What was your childhood like? Well, my childhood was uh, in Winton, California, uh, which is uh, in the central San Joaquin Valley, a agricultural area. We, uh, my uncles all had uh, peaches and almonds. And were farmers. My father was a 
was a machinist, but he was out of work most of the time. And he had to uh, do farm labor to make ends meet. And my mother as well worked part-time as a cafeteria person and also driving school bus. Um, We had a vegetable garden, uh, some fruit trees, and uh, I worked in the uh, peach and almond harvest during the summers to get me through school. So anyway, it was uh, a rural setting, barefooted, swam in the irrigation canal in the summer, attended grammar and high school locally there. Did your, I mean, were you planning on enter, entering, you know, what your father was doing or working, you know, continuing your, your, your career in, in almonds and fruit harvesting or was it, were you looking at other things as you were getting out of school? Definitely looking at other things uh, <laughs> at the advice of my parents, <laughs> which was good advice. Yeah, it was, they wondered they would constantly talk about, well, how are we going to put food on the table tomorrow? So it was not a, you know, a rich childhood. And so did that, do you think that affected the way you looked at your future and what you wanted to do with your life? Yes, definitely. Um, I have a older brother, three years older than I am, and we both decided we wanted to go to college and our parents supported that. But, of course, they couldn't pay for it, so we worked summers to get our way through college, and it was we were driven, given the uh, situation we lived in as we were growing up. Where did, where did you end up going to school? College. I went to Modesto Junior College for two years in electronic engineering. And then after, that was because I um, couldn't afford a four-year college at the time. Then I built up enough money to uh, go from there to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo and then uh, pursuing a four-year degree in electronic engineering. So you were motivated, you know, by the reality of of childhood to to make sure that you could put food on the table, but you know, I've never been a park ranger, but from what I understand, it's not the road to riches. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what, wh- wh- how did you go from electrical engineering to get into the park service? Was, was there some sort of overlap there? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, my parents were not outdoorsy at all. They were busy trying to make a living. We did get up to Yosemite periodically and had picnics up there. It was only like an 80-mile drive from our house. So that's what got me hooked onto the National Park Service, um, Yosemite in particular. I uh, landed a job with the Yosemite Park and Curry Company after I transferred to uh, Cal Poly College. That's first summer after my first year at Cal Poly. I... Uh, started working in Yosemite for the Curry Company as a houseman and uh, part-time as a uh, waiter. It was kind of a two-time job, so I could make enough money to get me through college. Wow. I I, uh, I actually worked at the campground at Curry Village for a summer a few years oh, you back. Did. Yeah, I did. I, I absolutely... Yosemite is my favorite place in the world, and I... I uh, Ended up working and living there in Curry Village for a while, and absolutely loved it. But have since moved to Denver. But uh, so I, I totally understand how that place um, just captures your heart. Yes. So you've been there, done that. Uh, that's interesting. So I worked in Yosemite that first summer. Then I went back to Cal Poly for the second year. And by the way, when I was working for the Curry Company in Yosemite. I befriended a, a National Park Service ranger there who uh, got paid to do the things I would do on my one day off a week. I don't know whether you recall. Um, did you have one day off a week or two days when you we, were up there? Yeah, that's a good question. We only had one day off because the park was so busy. So I was yeah. lucky to get a Sunday off. And even then, sometimes they'd want us to work that Sunday as well. Yeah, and that was a with me as well. 
it was frustrating, you know, looking yeah. at all these beautiful peaks and saying, I got to be here working. <laughs> <laughs> and then you fight to the nail just to get out and enjoy the backcountry while you're there and enjoy the park. Yep. And that's what I did. I, I went hiking on almost all my days off and fell in love with Yosemite. So that's how I got hooked with the National Park Service. And by the way, um, after my second, well, starting my second year at Cal Poly in electronic engineering, the next uh, summer I was able to uh, get a seasonal ranger position at Yosemite. At that point, I changed majors <laughs> after three years wow, uh, wow. from electronic engineering to forestry, which required that I transfer to another college, which I selected Humboldt State University in Northern California <clears throat> because I could afford that and not Berkeley, which is another forestry school. So it had that much of an impact on you to to change. <laughs> You're almost done with your college career, and you gotta you know essentially start a whole new direction. Uh, gosh, that, that must have been quite the impact. That must have been quite a love for the places. So, so I assume after school, you you got a job to continue working in Yosemite. C- can you tell us if that's true? What that was like? Yes, um, it was difficult to get on even seasonally and even more difficult to get on permanent. But seasonal positions were mostly uh, taken up by political appointees. Um, Unfortunately, Park Service, along with all other federal agencies, are very political. So I ended up having to call my congressman after I put my application in. And uh, he apparently pulled some strings because I did get a phone call from Yosemite, one of the hiring officials asking if I was still interested. No way. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's incredible. That probably changed your life. Yeah, and that is not something I wanted to stoop down to do, you know. <laughs> I wanted to get in fair and square, but uh, nothing happened. So I finally, I'm persistent, so I finally called my congressman. So I was offered a position as, they call it a weed-out position, entrance station ranger. You collect fees at the entrance station all day long. Oh, yeah. And I loved it. <laughs> really? Why Why did you love it? Well, because I had my foot in the door. Wow. And I had two days off a week, so I again, I hiked and explored the park pretty much on my days off. By the way, the next summer, I was rehired again as a seasonal park ranger, and I was able to get on at Tuolumne Meadows. You're familiar with that, aren't you? Oh, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely a hidden I, gem to the common visitor. I, um, during my first year, you know, working at our truck entrance station, I hiked in the high country quite a bit. And I got to know the district ranger up at Tuolumne Meadows. So I said, hey, what's my chances of getting on here next summer? He says, well, we'll take a look at it. So I got an offer the next summer from the district ranger at Tuolumne. And I got a campground ranger position there the second. And actually the third and fourth summers. That was much improved over the entrance station. And it allowed me to do a lot of exploring and hiking in the high country, particularly in the Tuolumne Meadows area. So let me ask you this, you know, I I know that working as a ranger is, you know, highly sought after. And it sounds like even then it was pretty competitive. I mean, is that true? Was it something back then that was also something a lot of people wanted to do? Oh, yes particularly getting on permanent, that is the most difficult. But uh, I was told time and again when applying for positions that, well, we're looking at the top 90%, and then you better have a pretty good resume. And then besides that, you better know somebody (laughs) to hire an official in particular. (laughs) And uh, there is a lot of competition, and I understand. I've been retired for 22 years now. 
but uh, I understand it hasn't changed that much as far as getting positions. No, I don't think so. I definitely tried to get on for a while, um, became frustrated in a lot of ways, but um, also life just changed. But uh, no, that's that's incredible. I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Rock, the comedian, but he says that uh, he was told that, you know, follow your passions if you want, you know, to do what you want to do with your life. And he says, well, I, re- I realize now there needs to be three things in place. One, you need to be good at it. Two, they need to be hiring, and three, it helps to know somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> it sounds Very like you. It sounds like you would agree based on what you just said. So, Indeed. So, you know, you you worked seasonal for a few years. What did it feel like to get hired on full time? And what were that? You know, what was it like first starting out full time? I after my first no second summer as a seasonal park ranger at Yosemite. And I was working at Tuolumne at that time. Um, I put in for a winter position, seasonal winter position at Death Valley. They have a winter season at Death Valley. Of course, Yosemite has a summer season. So I got uh, picked up there and they assigned me to Badwater. Are you familiar with uh, Death Valley? Absolutely. I would say... Outside of Yosemite, I think that's I think it's probably my wife's favorite park is Death Valley. We go there quite a bit. It definitely has its attractions. Completely different from Tuolumne. <laughs> <laughs> different but, uh, planets, but only yeah. you know a hundred miles apart. <laughs> and it, I think I spent uh, the first three weeks just getting hydrated enough <laughs> to uh, feel comfortable, but. Uh, so they assigned me uh, 50 miles south of Badwater in the remotest part of the park. Uh, they hauled a uh, 12 by 40 foot trailer down there for me to work out of. It's called the Ashford Ranger Station. They put a sign wow. up there, and I had they gave me a four wheel drive pickup with a 50 gallon gas tank mounted in the bed of the truck, so I could spend a whole week out there patrolling on the with the uh, four-wheel drive pickup. Was it paved to Badwater Basin at that point? Yes, it was paved to Badwater, but you get south of there, like, I forget how far, maybe 10 miles, and it turns to gravel. So anyway, I would spend a week patrolling four-wheel drive backcountry roads, mostly mining roads. Some of them you had to creep in low range, very remote, like the uh, upper valleys. Some of them you had to just kind of crawl into with the four-wheel drive. And I actually got stuck a few times up there, but I'd hardly ever see anyone. Although occasionally you would meet people, and mostly miners, because Death Valley allowed mining, uh, people with legitimate claims were mining up there. So I'd spend a week up there, and then I'd go back to headquarters and uh, park my park vehicle and pick up my private vehicle and go off for two days, and then I'd come back, and that clear until April. I think it was mid-April, and then I was done at Death Valley, and I did two winter seasons like that there. What would you be patrolling for all the out, way out there? Yeah, law enforcement. Um People collecting rocks, uh, trespass by neighboring uh, entities or squatters or so forth. Um, by the way, the Manson clan was just outside the, the, the park there. Did you ever see him? No, I never did, but I was real close to where they were staying. And I talked to several of the homesteaders while they're miners. I lived in Butte Valley, which is near where the uh, Manson clan was, but inside the park, not outside. And uh, they told me about them. I said, yeah, they're real bad, they said. So, yeah, it was uh, chucking. People would shoot chuckers. It's a quail-like okay. bird okay. for food. So there was some poaching going on up there. And I would talk to these miners to try to get information and find out where it was going on. 
and uh, sometimes I'd spend the night in there watching for lights and headlamps and so forth. But uh, so it was protection functions, you know, law enforcement primarily, and protecting the resource. Did you ever come across anything just incredibly bizarre? Just because with people that don't know, Death Valley is just a, in itself, a bizarre moonscape. And I can't imagine just how empty and and isolated you did feel at times. Definitely very isolated. Um, Some days on patrol, I'd spend all day and not see anybody. But just my presence with the uh, marked patrol pickup was enough to deter a lot of illegal activity. And that was one of the main purposes for me being there. They'd see my ranger station down there says, oh, there's a ranger patrol in this area. So that, I think, deterred a lot of activity that would otherwise might have been taking place. Did you ever get scared when you got stuck in this in the sand? I mean, how, how did you get out of that? Those kinds of situations. Because <laughs> that's a funny, long walk to whoever you needed to find for help. Uh, funny you ask. Uh, I went up into Butte Valley one day, and I got stuck about as far away from the, my ranger station as I could get. It was about a three-hour drive by four-wheel drive. And it was above Butte Valley and another remote side canyon. And I was following this uh, Jeep road that kept getting narrower and narrower. And then it started leaning out towards where it drops off on the one side. <laughs> and... Uh, I was creeping along, so I wasn't driving fast, but there was no way to turn around. And uh, ground gave way under my right front tire, and the right front wheel dropped off the road. And so I was at a real high angle. I tried to gently ease it out in reverse, and it just got worse. So luckily, I was able to get radio contact with the park headquarters with my boss, and uh, the policy then was if you got stuck, you walk out. <laughs> wow. And uh, so I s- said, well, I'm stuck and I don't want to risk, you know, rolling the vehicle. So I'm heading out and I'll have my radio on. And I always carried a pack that I could survive overnight, no problem. So I started walking out and I got into Butte Valley and uh, started to get towards the bottom end of Butte Valley, and here comes one of my other rangers with his pickup, and they felt sorry for me, I guess, and uh, picked me up and took me to headquarters, and we uh, devised a plan and got some come-along winches and stuff, and went up the next day and built up the shoulder and backed it out after a while after putting some uh, protection in place and uh, got the vehicle out eventually. So that worked out okay. Wow, man, that is, what an adventure. So, you know, you, you, you went through all kinds of, I mean, you were a ranger in all sorts of different places, doing all sorts of different jobs. You know, I, I, is there any one particular place that, that really captured you, you know, maybe outside of Yosemite or um, an experience that was just, just magical for you? Yes, Um my experience and skills were mostly snow-related. I did a lot of skiing downhill cross-country before um, I got into park service. And then once I got permanent, which is another story, uh, I don't know whether you're interested in hearing about that, but sure. how I got in. Well, anyway, when I was working at Death Valley, the superintendent asked me, well, what's your long-range career goal, Dallas? And uh, says, I'd lo- just love to get permanent. says, well, let me make a few phone calls and see what I can do. And he used to work at the Washington office for the National Park Service. And he had made a phone call, I guess, with the FSCE, Federal Service Entrance Exam, uh, which is a government-wide weed-out exam that you have to pass and get selected from. And I had already uh, filled out my application and for a permanent job and had passed the exam and had finally gotten over a 90% on it. 
So it was just a matter of getting selected at that point. I had already terminated for the season at Death Valley, and I was on my way to Yosemite to start working a summer season there. And um, I got a phone call from the Albright Training Center, which is in Grand Canyon National Park. It's a ranger school, basically. It's called the Park Major Intake Training Academy. And they run you through a three-month training session where you're exposed to the complete National Park Service agenda. In other words, all the divisions and so forth, and whatever a park ranger needs to know in the way of instructions. So it's mostly classroom. So I was able to get into that in the, the next summer. And uh, once I got through with there, you're on probation for a whole year. If you work out okay, they'll hire you on as a permanent ranger. The second phase, after the classroom three months at Grand Canyon, they sent me to Grand Teton National Park. Oh, boy. Wow. So what did what, you think about the Grand Canyon? I mean, that's... Oh, a lovely place. I didn't get to uh, work there, although I, I did do some ride-alongs with some of the patrol rangers there. Uh, most of it was just training. Anyway, at Tetons, they run you through on-the-job training. So you're a park ranger, but you're on probation. You're doing the job that you would do as a permanent later if you're selected. So they run you through all the, the divisions of the National Park Service. Administrative, maintenance, interpretive, natural resources, and protection which is the the park ranger's position that I was in, was protection division, which covers law enforcement, uh, EMS, search and rescue, fire, structural and wildland, snow travel, stuff like that. So I got assigned to Coulter Bay. Are you familiar with Grand Teton National Park? Uh, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Been many times. Okay. Coulter Bay, as you know, has a large lake, Jackson Lake. You do boat patrol. You have a vast backcountry on the west side of the lake, which is accessible only by boat for the most part. So I spent the summer months doing in charge of the Coulter Bay boating operation and patrol operation and backcountry. And I had another intake ranger trainee in charge of front country operations. But anyway, so I got to do boat patrols and hiking up Berry Creek and some of those western valleys on the other side of the lake and got very familiar with the backcountry there. And we did, uh, there was some poaching going on from Driggs, Idaho, coming in over the divide on the other side. So we did some uh, poaching patrols up in that Berry Creek area. And of course, the uh, lake patrols and so forth. And then in the winter months, to fill out the the nine months for my full year, we skied. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my mentor was uh, a ranger, the district ranger for the North District. And he uh, taught us all about how to wax and which skis to get and so forth. And we did ski patrols into the backcountry patrol cabin, spent the night and did patrols out of there. And uh, and then also snow plane. Snow plane is basically, uh, it looks like a fuselage of an airplane without the wings with a blower prop on the back. And it has skis on it. And that's how you got across the frozen lake. No, I've, so, I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah, they're unique. Um, and we had a couple of those to get across the lake to the other side. It was frozen, of course, and to do our backcountry patrols on the west side of the lake. Oh, wow. I'm looking at one now. That is so bizarre. What an interesting piece of machinery. And another side story, and if I'm rambling too much, let me know here, but uh, before before I was there, some like several years before, two rangers had skied across Jackson Lake, which is frozen, but 
It has these thermal areas on the west end of the lake that cause thin ice where it's thinner in certain places and plenty thick in others. And they fell through the ice, both of them, and it was like 20 below zero. Um, both were eventually able to get out onto the ice, but they were soaking. And they started skiing over to the first patrol cabin, which was about a mile away. And of course, right away, they were suffering from hypothermia. And they barely got to the cabin. They couldn't get it unlocked. You know, you have no dexterity to open a lock. <laughs> but finally, one of them got the uh, door unlocked, but the other one uh, passed away right there from hypothermia. And then uh, the other one was able to get the fire going, and after that, warmed up and eventually survived. But uh, anyway, there's some definite hazards out there in the wintertime. Gosh, man, that is, that's just awful, man. Um, now, you know, in, in your vast 35 years, I know you saw quite a bit and went to a lot of places. Um, are there any other stories that you'd be willing to share about just what this experience has been like? Maybe things that are strange or just unique, uh, um, of all different sorts, maybe animal encounters, something like that. Well, um, I wouldn't say it's strange so much. I worked in Yellowstone for two years. I moved uh, four times while I was there. That was the chief ranger's policy at the time. Every six months, he moved his subdistrict rangers to a different subdistrict. So I was in the Lamar subdistrict at the time, and uh, we got a report from some guy that was lost on the Mirror Plateau, which has no trails up there, and it was wintertime. And he finally found his way out, this person who reported it to, to us. And he said there were, like, he stumbled across this poacher camp up there that uh, they had three elk hanging from trees that were skinned out. Of course, poaching, killing elk in the park, Yellowstone is illegal. That's a heavily forested area. It's on a plateau. And, of course, no trails in there. So I put one of my backcountry patrol rangers up on a ridge that looks right over into that plateau. And he spent several nights there with binoculars looking for fire, you know, a campfire or headlamps or anything. Never did pick up anything, and we never did find that uh, poetry camp. That was stood out as one thing that uh, happened while I was in Yellowstone. And... I worked at Lassen Volcanic National Park for seven years, or snow ranger for the Lassen Park ski area. And that was a really interesting assignment, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you got to ski. Yeah. And we did backcountry patrols from there. And But the main thing that I was involved was with was the uh, avalanche hazard mitigation for not forecasting but advisories so myself and some of my other rangers that worked for me there we would do avalanche control work on these downhill ski slopes every morning before the, the ski area opened so we would ski across these steeper areas and slides it's called skiing off uh, cornices and uh, to see if there was any instability, and if there was, just kick it loose, and then open the ski area once we did our work. We also um, inspected chairlifts and rope toes and so forth. And then backcountry, we would put an avalanche hazard advisories at the ranger station there, at the base of the ski area, which was also the as far as the road was plowed, and a parking, large parking area and ranger station there. So we'd post advisories there. So a real interesting place to work. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, now over the course of that 
35 years and doing all this interest and work in these places, did you notice any general trends changing for the park service or for, for your job as a ranger? Was there anything that you noticed when you first started versus when you retired? Yeah. Um, when I first started, just about all rangers were general rangers, not specialized. In other words, you were a jack of all trades and special and master of none. <laughs> So right. you dabbled in, dabbled in everything. But as uh, big city crimes, reduced staffing, overcrowded trails, less environmentally aware public, and more litigious society developed through the years, um, it forced us into having specialized rangers. We'd have a ranger that would specialize in uh, technical rescues another in emergency medical services, and another backcountry operations. In other words, if we had an incident that required some expertise in one of those areas, we'd have that person be the search and rescue coordinator. So there were a lot of changes through the years. Did you think that was uh, the effect of just becoming more aware of the wilderness and becoming more aware of what it meant to protect these places? Or do you do you, I mean, do you agree with a lot of those changes and were they welcome? Yes and no. <laughs> it's, um, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. Um, us older people that look back on it, the general ranger was a jack of all trades. You could do just about anything. But um, nowadays... Rangers are specializing even more, and we were forced into it pretty much just by virtue of the change of the public that's visiting the national parks. Like I said, we have big city crimes now, and uh, every year reduced staffing. Trails are trailheads now. Cars are parked, not only filling up the designated parking spots, but along the roadside, both sides, and um, a less environmentally aware public or poorly prepared backcountry users. So you have to deal with those new situations. And I think the Park Service does a great job in adjusting. What was one of the strangest things or strangest things you saw a guest do or, or a visitor say to you? Well, there's a lot of, particularly with bears, when I was working at Glacier National Park, which was there 16 years, that was my last park. Oh, 16 years. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, <clears throat> and that's where I retired from. Bear management, we have a plan for everything there, which is one of the strengths of the National Park Service. You go to the search and rescue plan or you go to the bear plan or whatever, and it's already been thought through. And um, public, there are many self-proclaimed experts, and uh, I don't even consider myself one, even though I dealt with them for 16 years, and then since I retired, I've been doing volunteer back and deal with bears all the time. But um, people in the backcountry, you see them running with earbuds in their ears, on backcountry trails, a fanny pack, and that's it, shorts, and a t-shirt, and uh, it's just asking for trouble. Um, in what way, just not being aware of what's around you? Three things that got people in trouble in the backcountry, in bear country. Uh, one is the surprise encounter. All of a sudden, a bear pops up right next to the trail, it's surprised, you're surprised, and bears have a very large protective zone, and you don't know whether it's going to attack or not. A second situation is a female bear with cubs. They're very protective. And then the third is a food source, a carcass or berries, and um, they'll protect that source. So when you're running... First of all, you need all your senses, including hearing, to uh, help you through that. And uh, we've had a lot of incidents where people have been attacked. And bears are 
very forgiving most of the time, and they'll do a false charge. They'll charge you full speed, then they'll stop short, maybe 10, 20 yards, bounce up and down, stiff-legged, and chomp their teeth and grunt. That's their warning. And then you got to basically take a submissive posture and, you know, look away from them. Staring at a bear is uh, aggression in bear language. So you look away, and then um, if the bear continues, then you just go into a fetal position and protect your neck and so forth. But uh, And a lot of times, they'll just bite you and take off in that situation. Sound, sounds like it comes from a lot of personal experience. <laughs> well, fortunately, I have not had any real close encounters like that because I make noise when I travel. Right, right. You you probably make it look easy because you know what you're to, you're to do, and you're making sure you don't end up in that situation. So in my experience is that if you make noise, the bear hears you well ahead of time, and they'll make it usually make every effort to get out of the way, and you don't even see them. And uh, so that that's how you avoid those situations. And I whistle a lot, and um, a lot of people say, well, that dis- that's, uh, disturbs my privacy in the back, in back country. But it's something you have to do to be safe. And the bear is the one that will suffer as well. You know, you know, learning all this knowledge and, and being in this, you know, in this career for so long, what, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about working for the Park Service uh, that you've learned over the years? Well, they don't know about what happens after the visitor contact uh, or an incident. If you um, investigate a traffic accident, for instance, you've got an hour's worth of paperwork. Um, You've got to document everything uh, because of a lot of litigation is based on, well, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. Lawyers will look at that and say, well, where's your proof, you know? And then the same with search and rescue. you got to write incident reports for that. The realities of ranger life <clears throat> that a typical park ranger doesn't see as a supervisor long and con- compensated hours running your operation you're working well beyond your pay you get paid for eight hours a day and um, to run your operation you need more than that you know to to draw it all the way back you know after you know spending your life doing this where you did you achieve your goal of, of being able to put food on the table for for you and your family throughout your career Yes, but uh, with some uh, sacrifices. Um, If you want to make a living and support your family, and I had a wife and two kids, you needed to take promotions when they offered. And uh, at the same time, when you take a promotion, you're going more into a desk job in supervision and management. And uh, battle is trying to range i call you know rangers are supposed to range <laughs> that's the park root <laughs> yeah i never never put it like that but yeah it's exactly right so getting out to uh, inspect your operation and see what's going on and support your uh, employees you need to get out and see where where the problems are what's being done make corrections um you need to get out to do that. You can't sit behind a desk or a computer. Computers weren't an issue until halfway through Glacier, halfway through my 16 years at Glacier. So anyway, I, I was thinking, well, once computers, and I got my personal computer first before the park even got theirs, because I thought, well, I'll uh, send out memos and do stuff and just go into into the computer and print and modify it each time I need to redo a plan or something. 
and it'd give me more field time. Well, it didn't work that way. You get email after email after email that requires follow-up. And the only way to avoid that is to uh, go into the office before 8 a.m. when everyone else gets on duty and take care of the most important, urgent items that show up on your desk or on your voicemail. And then leave for the field by 8 a.m. and uh, get back by 5. And somehow a lot of those emergencies seem to uh, get taken care of. Not, I shouldn't say emergencies. I got a park radio with me. I'm always available. But uh, a lot of those things that require some follow-up, uh, I would do later when I got back. And that way I would take care of my ranging option and check my field operations. I, I think we have time for a couple more questions if you do. I, I'd love to know, just do, do you have an you have a time when or a story that happened when you know you you sat back or you were in your truck or on patrol or something and thought this is exactly why I do this this is this is why I love this this job. Yes, I would frequently do backcountry patrols, uh, even at Glacier when I was in a management position, and most of those would be on my days off. <laughs> um, I would, for instance, ski into Belly River Ranger Station, which is about an eight-mile ski one way, and I would just look at the surround. Nobody was around, and I would look around at the surrounding mountains, and it would be so pristine, and you'd say, yes, this is why I'm in the Park Service. Uh, You would see wildlife, like I was skiing out of that same ranger station one morning when uh, it was October, if I remember, or November, early November, and there was uh, fog in the valley. You couldn't see more than like 20, 30 yards. And I was, I heard this elk bugle and, uh, and then another one coming from the opposite direction. Pretty soon the two elk buglings got closer and closer together and I couldn't see anything that was going on. And, uh, and then pretty soon I heard these clashing of antlers. So you knew pretty much what was going on and the, uh, elk were bugling and, oh, talk about living the wildlife dream, you know? Wow. That is awesome. I bet you had experience after experience like that in in 35 years out there. That is incredible. So that is one of the pluses, well, one of the many pluses for being in the National Park Service. You know, if you were to talk to somebody that was, you know, interested in, in building a career in in the park service or in the outdoors, what what advice would you have for him? I guess number one is call your congressman or woman. Um, and I'm just playing. That might not be on your your list, but is there anything yeah. in particular you would share with them? Yeah, not in that order, but uh, first of all, find out what skills are needed for the position you want. Um, for instance, uh, rock climbing, fire suppression, EMS, search and rescue law enforcement public interaction, and then uh, I would develop as many of those skills as you can before applying. Try to schedule an interview with the hiring official. This is key. The hiring official tends to remember people that they've interviewed, and uh, if you can make a good impression during the interview, that's in your favor. And if you can afford it, do volunteer work in a similar position ideally associated with the same hiring official and build up a desirable uh, work ethic and reputation. And uh, most important, be persistent. And uh, if you have to, (laughs) you're a congressman, I guess, but throw those first steps first. Dallas, is there there anything else you want to share? Is there anything we didn't cover that that you'd like to say? Not really. Um, I encourage 
reach people that are interested in the National Park Service. It's a family affair, um, unlike other uh, federal agencies, uh, which are so large that uh, you hardly know anyone in, other than those in the immediate area that you're working at. Park services, you get to know almost park, wide, park service wide. You get to know a lot of the people involved, and it's more of like a family. Um, the, when they're hiring, when you're hiring for seasonal positions or even permanent positions, you call your counterparts in other parks a lot of times and find out from the resume that you're looking at that they worked at that part. How did this person do, you know, while he's working there? So your reputation is real important, your work reputation for getting a job or promotion. That's uh, great advice. Great advice, great stories. I I hope you stay healthy, stay well during this time, and uh, we will we will have to have you on again at some point. So thank you so much for joining us, and uh, yeah, enjoy the mountains. Well, thanks for the interview. Yes, sir. All right, talk soon. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.